Amen. Good morning. All right, Acts chapter 9, if you want to turn there. Uh, if you need a Bible, there's one on the chairs in front of you, and I have the same page number, so it's like page 917, if you want to do that. As Pastor Maudie said, there are, uh, can we set that for 50, please, uh, and, then, uh, and then start it? Thank you. That worked. All right. That was quick. Uh, as Pastor Maudie said, at the end of the message, each week, we do what we call a takeaway. We just ask the question, what is one thing you heard today that you learned or heard and you want to apply it to your life this week? And so we give them a, a minute for that, or we give a couple minutes for that at the end of each message for you to talk about that with your family or, or you know, someone near you. Uh, so today we're going to look at the conversion of one of the most significant people in the first century church. It's going to be Saul, and if you're unfamiliar with uh, who Saul is, Saul becomes Paul. Paul is the one who writes a good portion of the New Testament, more letters than anybody else, uh, writes several letters to several churches, becomes really a central figure to the non-Jewish church. I'm going to see the conversion of that man today. Now, what is unique about him is that Saul is a devout follower of God. We call him a zealot. Zealot means he, he, he is zealous to be a follower of God. The problem is that he is off track in what it means to be a follower of God. Does that make sense? So he is passionate, but he is passionately wrong. And that's a problem. Right? And we're going to see that today. And it kind of reminds me, it pushes me back about 500 years uh, to the time, it was probably one of the more significant moments in church history, we call that the Reformation, or where the church protests the corruption, Protestant, and, and desires to fix the problem, reform, right? And we have the Protestant Reformation, where we kind of come out of, uh, where all the evangelical and, and I would say Bible teaching churches kind of come out of that, Right? And what happened was that the church had gone on for about a thousand years and had battled heresies and battled corruption. And about a thousand years in, about a thousand years after what we're reading about, a big east-west split. The Orthodox Church breaks away from the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church continues to get off track, and and some people from within the Roman Catholic Church want to reform the corruption in the church, within the church. And, and so they, that's where we get the Protestant Reformation, the, their desires to get back on track with Scripture. And there are some many things that come out of that era. One of them is, is commonly talked about the five solas. Sola is the Latin word for alone. So let me give you a main idea today. Today we see the conversion of Saul, the man Paul, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, established by the authority of Scripture alone. Those five alones, those five solas, became kind of a, a governor or, or like guardrails in the Reformation, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and that the only authority is Scripture alone. That we cannot trust in church history, and that the Pope is not infallible, but we must always go back to Scripture. So that's where we pick up today. In Acts chapter 9, verse 1, it says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So we met Saul already in chapter 7. And eight, 
right there as Stephen is executed, the first Christian martyr. At the end of 7, it says, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. In the beginning of 8, chapter 8, it says, and Saul approved of his execution. So again, Saul is a zealot. He's a passionate Jewish religious leader, but he is so passionate about this that anybody who disagrees, and that's what he sees Christians, sees Christians to be, as people who are deceiving Jewish followers of God, and so his zealousness for God or his passion for God or his devoutness to his faith is causing him to there go and persecute Christians. Modern day version of this, we think of like Islamic fundamentalist like kind of terrorists, right? Not, not normal, regular Muslims, but the extreme ones that are persecuting Christianity in different countries. And obviously that's worked its way here sometimes. Now there's a lot of examples of that. But the Islamic version of that is, is similar to Saul, to where the extreme fringe of that really sees themselves as glorifying God in the violence. You with me? That's where Saul was. That it was glorifying to God for him to persecute those who belong to the way, right? And the way was an early nickname for Christians because they followed Jesus, who will see claims to be the way, the truth, the life, right? Now, there's a significant difference between Saul and modern-day opposition to Christianity. Saul believes in the God of the Old Testament. Saul believes in the God of the Bible would be a better way to say it. Because remember, at this point in time, the New Testament hasn't been written. They're living it. So Saul believes in the God of the Bible. But that does not mean he's a follower of Jesus, and so what, what matters here is though he believes in the God of the Bible, he misunderstands the God of the Bible and therefore is not following Jesus, who is also the God of the Bible. You with me? All right. Verse 3. It says, now as he, meaning Saul, went on his way, he approached Damascus. That's in Syria. And suddenly a light from heaven was shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Yeah, he's not having a good day. Right? So, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul is now consumed in this bright light, hearing a, a voice audibly from heaven and, and rethinking life right now, right? Who are you? I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Now, I just want you to put yourself in Saul's shoes today. Because to start in Saul's starting point helps us understand kind of what we're to understand, right? Right now, at this moment, Saul has believed that he has been glorifying God by persecuting, arresting, beating, and even approving of the murder of those who follow Jesus. And now, Jesus, who lived and died and rose from the dead, ascended back to the heavens, where he sits on a throne, alive and reigning as king today, Jesus speaks to Saul. Everything about Saul's life right now is up for grabs. Everything he believed is out the window. Everything he thought was wrong is now, well, speaking to him. And so you got to understand that everything that Saul believes, his entire paradigm for faith, his, his whole worldview is now shaken. The light from heaven is Jesus. He speaks to him very much alive why are you persecuting me? Like when you persecute Christianity, Jesus says, the church, that's my body. They're my people. You're persecuting me. So I was like, who are you? 
And Jesus tells him, I'm Jesus, right? And you've got to set yourself in that place, right? Saul has been zealous for God, but wrong, just outright wrong, and that is confronting him right now. And, and what you have to understand is though Saul has been very passionate about following, following God, he's been wrong in how he's been following God. And, and God is not going to meet Saul one day after Saul has mistakenly followed God, and he's not going to look at Saul and say, hey, nice try, you're cool. You with me? He's not, he's not okay with you not following him the way he calls us to follow him. If, if God is going to give his son for our salvation, then you're, you're, you're to be found in Jesus, Right? See, the gospel is that, that God created us, designed us, loves us, and in that designed us piece means he created how we are to live, right? And that we owe our allegiance to him, and we, we owe our lives to him as our creator, and as God, and as the one who is always right. But sin has entered into human history. It, it entered in back in the garden, and, and, and then we add to it, and so we're born in sin, so we're born sinful, and the outcome of that is that we also sin, we add to the problem, and that sin separates us from God. And God, knowing that we can't earn our way back or, or fix our problem or heal the divide, if you will, because God knows that we could never fix the problem, God must come to us. And so God gives his son. So God becomes flesh, the creator, Jesus, the word of God, who was in the beginning, who created the world, all of it becomes human flesh, fully God and yet fully human, to live the life that you and I were called to live. In fact, all the way back to Adam, the life Adam was called to live, but failed, chose not to. The life you and I are called to live, but choose not to. So Jesus was to live that life perfectly with everything bringing glory to God and then trade his perfect life for our sinful jacked up lives. And then he will take his perfect life and he will nail that perfect life to a cross, sacrificing it, trading it, substituting it for us so that one day when we stand before God, if, if we are in Christ, that we will stand there and the debt that we owe to God for sin and the wrath of God that we deserve will have already been paid by Jesus on the cross. And so if God is going to go that far, if God is going to sacrifice his only son, if Jesus is going to come and, and humble himself in the human flesh and then live a life of enduring all that we endure and overcoming it all and then trading his perfect life that merited the very favor and love of God, if he's going to trade that for us, then what we learn is that there is no other way that we can come to faith in God. We can't have a good effort over here but miss the point. And that's where Saul is. So here's a verse for you. In John chapter 14, it says this. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Here's what Jesus didn't say. I'm one way. I am living my best truth or something, right? <laughs> I am the way, the truth, the life. No one, it's pretty exclusive, no one comes to the Father but my me. So Saul right now is living, believing he is coming to the Father apart from Jesus, and that's not true. 
though he is passionate and zealous, and, zealous and, and, and he believes he is pleasing God, he is not pleasing God because he has rejected Jesus. In fact, not just rejected Jesus, but he is persecuting all those who follow Jesus. Okay. But Jesus speaks to him from heaven. Right? Next slide, please. So salvation is found in Christ alone. God sacrificed his only son to save humanity from sin and rebellion and will not accept any other means of salvation. Christ alone is our redeemer. There's no other way but Jesus. Okay? That's kind of that first foundational piece. You can't really try and follow God the way you think is good, even if you find something in Scripture, but it misses Jesus. You can't do this. God's not going to say, hey, I really appreciate your effort. Come on in. He's going to say, I gave my son, and you rejected him. Or, I gave my son, and because you're in him, your debt is paid. Right? Okay. Verse 6. It says, but Saul, rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you're to do. So, Saul's on the road to Damascus to arrest and persecute Christians. And along the way, Jesus speaks to him from heaven. We've been, we're talking about the good news. Like It seems like, okay, this is bad news, and yet here's the good news, right? See, the bad news is even though Saul is attempting to glorify God, he's off. But the good news is God sovereignly speaks to him. Jesus speaks to him from heaven, changing his mind, correcting his view. You with me, right? Just because this would have excluded him, God is not content with that, so God corrects him. The good news is that even though Saul was entirely off track, going against God, rejecting God, and rebelling against God, though he thought he was following God, the good news is that God loved him enough to tell him he was wrong to correct him. And so Jesus speaks to him from heaven, calling him. Verse 7, it says, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul is not alone. He's with some other guys, and they're headed towards Damascus, right? And they hear this thing, and, and they, different accounts, there's different accounts of this. Paul speaks about it in some of his letters. We'll read about it again twice in the book of Acts. And the others are mentioned, but the story is about Saul's conversion. It's about what God is doing in Saul. And so it kind of says that they're there, they're present, they have some kind of experience with this, but the story's not about them, so it's tracking through this story of Saul. Now, there's a, a question that immediately comes to our mind. Okay, if Saul is persecuting Christians, if he is literally going and knocking on doors and finding those Christians and arresting them and, and wanting to persecute them, and, he, and he's good with their death, He's good with the execution of Christians. He's already showed that. If, if that's who Saul is, the question becomes, why would God choose him? Why would Jesus call him? Why not just let him run his course and then completely give him what he deserves at the end of his life? But see, that's wrong thinking. Because what that naturally does, it implies to us, like, well, we have something to, you know, Saul's bad. We're not that bad. You see the problem, right? You see, salvation is by grace alone. So in Ephesians 2, it says this, and we'll put this on the screen. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. That's another way of saying, even when we were rebelling and rejecting God, even then, 
He made us alive together with Christ. He says, Paul says, by grace you have been saved. So same person, Saul, that's on the road to Damascus, writes these words later, by grace we have been saved. So grace is defined as unmerited favor. You can't earn it. It's God's favor or mercy or grace, right? So here's a note to you. Salvation by grace alone. God does not save us, does not save us based on anything we bring to God, but only as a free, unmerited gift we call grace. We are saved by grace alone. It is wholly and completely and totally a gift from God. There's no merit, there's no good, there's no cooperation with, there's nothing we bring to the table except junk, our sin and our shame. And that's where Saul is right now. He's got nothing to offer. But Jesus transforms him in this moment. See, we're saved by grace alone. Again, again 500 years ago, the, the churches and, and, and the common prevailing Christian understanding had just abandoned the gospel that Jesus was the only way, was central to Christianity, started adding. And, and that, that it is not just grace, but it's grace plus, Right? Grace plus our good works. And so, again, as the church reformed and fixed and, and got back on track and said, okay, what, do we, what are we taught about this? We see this play out in the conversion of Saul. That Jesus is the only way we're not okay to be off track, even if we're trying really hard. And that there's really no good reason to save Saul. In fact, there's great reasons to send Saul to hell forever, but it is by grace alone. It is it is somehow in God's good will. And we'll see this play out, obviously, in the life of Paul. Verse 8. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. So everything has just changed for Saul. His entire world, everything he believed to be true, the very zealous faith he had, the very passionate faith in God he had, is all now out the window. It's up for grabs because everything is different. He thought that Jesus was antithetical to true faith and come to find out true faith is only in Jesus. And so he is, he's just kind of everything is spinning. And Jesus literally himself alive after being crucified and died, resurrected and alive is now speaking to Saul. And so he is blinded by this, literally physically blinded. He gets up and his entire world has been up, just upended. Everything is different now. And now everything about Saul must change. And it's not everything about Saul must change because he was a persecutor of Christianity. This is a universal truth for all of us that everything about us must change. We just get to see it spelled out really well and articulate in the life of Saul. But we are no less going in, 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 in an opposite direction. We are also, just like Saul, going in an op opposite direction, rejecting and rebelling against God. It just may look different, right? So that means everything must change. And because of that, because God has been so gracious to Saul, and because Saul has nothing to contribute to this, because he's, he's not a good guy, he's actually a bad guy. He's a guy who's been persecuting Christians, not a guy who's just a little off track, right? But because of this, the grace and the mercy and the love of God becomes so big to Saul that everything about Saul must change. And this Saul must surrender everything about his life to Jesus. We don't get to come to God on our own terms. 
and choose our own response. Jesus has prescribed our response to us. So here's the words of Paul or Saul in Galatians chapter 3. It says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So what we're told is that, that Jesus is the only way, that grace is, is the unmerited favor of God given to us, that, that salvation is a gift of God that we can't contribute to or earn or, or ever pay back, but that all we can do is trust in Jesus. Faith is more than just mental assent or belief. Faith is not just I agree with the fact that Jesus is Jesus and that the things said about him are true. Faith is putting our life in that and trusting in that and living in response to that, trusting in nothing other than the work of Christ. Right? It can't be in anything we contribute. It can't be in anything, anything else. And it can't be that my life is just a little off track and we sprinkle a little Jesus on I'm good. It's that everything is wrong and everything has to change and that Jesus is enough for that and that we put our complete and total trust in Christ. And that we trust all the way to the point of when we one day stand before God eternally and we are judged for our sin, that, that we trust in Jesus that our sins are paid for. And that we trust that what Jesus says today is true, that he gives us the power to overcome life slowly but surely, as long as we live in this world, overcome this world. So salvation is through faith alone is our note. We receive God's gift of salvation by faith alone. We cannot earn or add to our salvation. All we do is respond by placing our complete trust in Jesus. We call that repentance. We place our complete trust in Jesus, and we know that everything must change, so we repent. We turn from how we were living, and we turn towards Jesus. Repentance. We deny the life we were living, and we aim at the life Jesus is calling us to. Back in Acts 9, verse 9. It says, for three days he was out without sight. So Saul's, for three days without sight, he neither ate nor drank. So what happens here is Saul, as he goes into Damascus, is blinded on the road, and as he gets there, he's fasting for three days. He doesn't eat, he doesn't drink, he's not doing anything right now but praying. And you can imagine his prayer life in this moment. Right? Like, I thought this, but now this. I couldn't have been further off. Now I'm over here, and you've got to understand, there's got to be a hundred, like, what does that mean? Like, what about this, and what does this mean for this? And like, what, right? And because of this, as, as Saul is leaning into figuring this out, he just denies himself everything else. Now, I'm guessing that this moment on the road to Damascus, this blinding by Jesus, I'm guessing this is the easiest fast Saul ever has. Because right now, nothing else is important, right? Right now, he's not hungry. Right now, he's trying to figure out how his whole life just got flipped upside down. See, fasting is the denial of something physical as we lean into something spiritual. Right? So we talked about last Wednesday. Yes, it was Valentine's Day. Ash Wednesday also, right? Last week began what we call the season of Lent or a fasting leading up to Easter, and we just got kind of thrown a curveball. As Pastor John was supposed to teach our Wednesday night service, Jeep broke, he ended up getting stuck, couldn't be out here. And so fortunately that day, obviously God had a plan, that day I'd been at Valley Christian, I'd done the chapel at the high school, we had done a message on Ash Wednesday, same day, it was still Ash Wednesday. And so we just pivoted and, and talked about what it means to fast, what it means to deny ourselves as we prepare ourselves for Easter 
We talked about praying for us to be transformed by Jesus this Easter and that we would deny ourselves, that we would take the challenge over the 46 days, 42 of them left, to deny something, not all food, not all water. You can't do that, right? But maybe you can, but I can't do that. So I wouldn't tell you to do something. But to give up something, how will we deny something physical, something that we enjoy, something that we like? How will we do that? And in place of that, lean into prayer and scripture. And we talked about Jesus in the wilderness, fasting as he prepared for ministry, in which he comes out of the wilderness into his three years of vocational ministry. And so we challenged the, I don't know how many of our people were here that night, to fast from something and to something over that season leading up until Good Friday and Easter. And so I'll give that challenge to you too. If you have any questions about that, let's talk about that afterwards. Now back to Damascus where Saul is, verse 10. It says, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So Jesus speaks to Ananias. Ananias is in prayer. He's, he's at home. He's, he's doing whatever he does. He's a follower of Jesus. And in that time where he is spending time with Jesus, Jesus actually speaks to him. It's the very thing you and I always say we would love. We'd love to have that, that like God clearly speaking to us, Jesus clearly speaking to us. I would challenge you, I'd say this, it'd probably scare us to death, but we all want that kind of thing, right? And, and here's what happens, so be careful what you ask for. Ananias gets that. Now, listen to what Jesus asked Ananias to do. Verse 11. It says, And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, I bet. And he has seen a vision, in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so he, may, he might regain his sight. So we know that Saul is fasting and that he's praying. Fasting from food and, and drink, he's he praying. And in this prayer, after Jesus blinding him on the road into Damascus and revealing that it's Jesus, now he's praying. Again, you got to put yourself in the place of Saul to understand this. Everything is different, right? Everything about Saul now, everything is a question. So he's praying, and God says, I'm going to send a man named Ananias to see you, right? Now, Ananias, cross town somewhere, wherever that is, right, is praying, and Jesus says to him, I want you to go see Saul, because he's been told that you're going to come see him and pray for him because he's blind, that he'll receive his sight back. Verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all or rest, all who call on your name. So Ananias is understandably nervous. Saul is a known quantity, right? He is a persecutor of Christians. They don't just know who he is. They know that the temple back in Jerusalem, the, the religious elite and leadership of Judaism, has given them authority, has given Saul authority to arrest Christians, to, to go find those Jewish followers of Jesus, wherever they be, extended out, because we're in Syria now, right? Those, those Hellenistic Jews that meet in synagogues to go and get them, arrest them, and bring them back and try them in Jerusalem, so he has all this information, and, and Saul hasn't even made it into the city yet, right? Saul's a known quantity. So Ananias is praying. Jesus speaks to him and says, listen, I want you to go see Saul, and I want you to pray for him. He's blind now. I want you to give him back his sight. And Ananias rightly says, are you sure? Kind of, right? 
And it's not wrong. He's not doubting God. He's like, okay, so I'm confused. This guy's been a problem, and I prefer him blind, right? Like, he seems like he's less trouble this way, Jesus. Are you sure, right? Did I misunderstand you? This is a first for me. Help me through this, right? Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. There are two super key things in this right here, in these words of Jesus to Ananias. First, Jesus tells Ananias, Saul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. We'll actually see this fulfilled in the book of Acts. We'll see Saul continue that out and eventually even proclaim the gospel to King Agrippa near the end of the book in chapter 26. Right? We'll see that happen in this book. He is chosen by me for a particular purpose. It's an interesting purpose considering he's like super Jew, right? Like he was this Pharisee, religious leader. Saul was this Pharisee of Pharisees, Jew of Jews. He says he's got a huge pedigree. We're summarizing that with super Jew, okay? For whatever that works, right? He was that. And yet notice what Jesus is going to use him for, to reach Gentiles and kings and some of the children of Israel, right? He's going to use him so outside his kind of prior life, if you will. But that's what God has for him. That's what Jesus has for him, right? Now, the second thing is equally important. It says, Saul will suffer for Jesus. He says, he must suffer for the sake of my name, right? Saul's life will be filled with suffering and persecution, beatings, arrests. He will eventually give his life for his faith. He will eventually die in Rome for being a Christian, now, a question for you. I want you to compare that to the modern-day gospel we hear here today. Do we hear about, hey, listen, you will suffer and be persecuted. Do we hear that? Or do we hear kind of this, hey, Jesus did all this, so if you say this magic prayer, you go to heaven. Missing this entire centerpiece that is our lives. See, that's not how Saul begins, and that's not really what Scripture tells us. Scripture teaches us that this life will be hard. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 15, or 16, excuse me. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Let me short form that. You'll suffer here, but that's okay, I've overcome here. Right? You'll have peace in me, you'll have peace in Christ. Internally you'll have peace when your world is in chaos but you're going to suffer for the sake of my name. Don't worry, I've overcome this temporary life, right? The call is to endure here, not to skip past. And we're here because we have a purpose here, because Jesus has chosen us for a job. It may not be exactly like Saul's. It may be nothing like Saul's. But what we've learned is that there's a purpose for us if we're willing to endure so here's a note for you. Salvation is for the glory of God alone. Let's just, before we read that, let me just say this. As the Reformation was taking shape about 500 years ago, one of the key pieces of the puzzle was that we are saved not for ourselves, but for the glory of God alone. Right? That our lives are saved not for our own benefit or pleasure, though we get benefit and pleasure. 
but for the glory of God alone. So it says, we are saved for God's glory alone, not for our own pleasure or benefit. We are not our own, but bought by Jesus' blood to glorify God on earth as he sees fit. See, when the reformers who were leaving Catholicism because of their resistance to change and to get back on track with Scripture, when they were being pushed out of the church, as communicated, some of them martyred and killed for trying to course correct by Scripture, they understood that their, their salvation or their being in Christ, their being positionally in Jesus, was not about their own comfort, but rather it was about something greater and purposeful that God had created them for. Now you fast forward 500 years and we live in a place where Christianity is, we'll say, legal, where many say they are Christians, and yes, the tenets of Christianity are often rejected in America, but we have a sign out front that says we're a church. It's not very hard to be a Christian in America, right? Not at least in that sense. So we've lost this understanding that we will suffer and endure in this life. So the, the reality of what scripture teaches us, if we're living for Jesus, we're going to get some pushback. Maybe it won't be the kind that takes our life, but for sure the world is going to be against us. But that's okay. Our salvation is for God's glory alone, not our own. Right? That our salvation isn't about us getting to heaven, although that's true. Our salvation is about transforming us into the people that God has created us to be. So that we can do the things that God created us to do. So that others will hear the gospel message of Christ. Verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road, I just want to comment just real quick. Ananias is afraid of Saul, right? Rightly afraid of Saul. Saul's got authority to arrest him and beat him and take him to jail and all these less than fun things. And I love Ananias' kind of lead off. You know Jesus who blinded you? I'm here in his name, Right? <laughs> Don't shoot the messenger, right? Okay, so here's what he says. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me to you that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. But when you saw in a vision, that's me. And I've come to you on behalf of Jesus. Just as you were chosen by God to do something particular, Jesus has called me to come pray with you. You're going to get your sight back and you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You're going to be empowered to do what Jesus is calling you to do. Now, Saul doesn't get all that yet. He gets that over time. He doesn't understand all of that right now. I'm sure in these three days of praying, he's, he's moved a little bit, right? He's understood a little bit more. He clearly believes in Jesus. But Ananias is going to be key in Saul's life to teaching him about how, it, how Jesus applies to his life. So verse 18, the second half of it says this. Oh, excuse me, in the beginning of it. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So Saul is converted to Christ. He is on this road to persecute Christians, and Jesus speaks to him on the road and blinds him and rescues him from himself, includes him in the payment that Jesus has paid for sin and for sinners, of which Saul is one, and by grace given that to Saul, Saul has responded by faith. He's gone into Damascus. He's not eating. He's not drinking. He's praying. He's praying to Jesus. Jesus tells him he's going to send somebody. He does. Ananias comes and prays for him, and Saul can see, 
And the first thing Saul does is get baptized. That he is converted to following Jesus here. Right? We always hear that, that call like in Acts 2.38 where the first preached message of the church goes out to non-believers. And they, at the end of that, they ask Peter who was preaching, like, what must we do to be saved? And Peter tells them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. The very first thing Saul does when he comes to faith is repent and be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit to live faithfully for Jesus. If you're not baptized, if you're a follower of Jesus, what stops you from doing the first thing Jesus calls you to do? The very thing that has a promise that will empower you to live the way Jesus is calling you to live, that identifies you as a follower of Jesus, not just a believer in Jesus who says something in their head like, I believe this, but a follower of Jesus whose belief is followed by action. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Faith and repentance come together. Faith is active in how we live in response to the gospel. Not to earn or merit God's love. God is already showering love on Saul. He's just responding to what God has done. Second half of verse 19. Some day, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name, meaning Jesus? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? So the people there are confused too, right? Isn't this the guy that was persecuting Christians? And, and, and is, did he just say what I think he said? Did he just proclaim Jesus the Son of God? And, and by saying this, everybody understood Son of God meant he is divine, that Jesus is God himself. Did he just say that? Isn't this the guy who was persecuting Christianity? Notice how different Saul is, right? He came there to persecute Christians. He is, he is converted to following Jesus in a, in a in dramatic fashion, I might add, right? And then now he is a preacher of Jesus, not an opponent, right? He is not just a follower of Jesus. He's not just somebody who says, I identify with Jesus. He is now changed. He's living different because of Jesus, you see, the things that are going on in Saul's life are true for us too. We have to understand ourselves as being an enemy of God, rejecting him, rebelling against him, and that, that by, by Christ, there is an, a, a way to be redeemed to God. But that gift is by grace, so there's nothing we can do to add to it or merit it or earn it. We're not good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, rich enough, poor enough, whatever enough, but it's a gift. It is God's love showered on us. Our only thing is to respond by faith. And faith isn't just belief, it's trust in. It's active, it's living for. And when we learn that, we learn, okay, now we're living for, that means we're living for the glory of God alone, that whatever God says is right is right. And if that means I am tried and persecuted, if that means I have to sacrifice some of the things in life that I enjoy in order to fix and, and focus and, and, and lean into Jesus alone, then, then that's what I do. This becomes secondary and Jesus is primary. That nothing else draws focus away from Jesus. That we live for the glory of God alone. Verse 22, it says, but Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving 
that Jesus was the Christ. This is an interesting saying, or an interesting phrase. First, he's arguing that Jesus is God, or Jesus is the Son of God, which he does. Now, he is also arguing with the Jews, and when I say arguing, don't hear like an argument. Hear defending or giving an apologetic for. He is, he is teaching that. Now, maybe it's an argument, but what it's saying is he is proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, right? The Christ is the Greek word for the Messiah, which is the Hebrew, which means the, he is the promise of all the Old Testament. He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. Then all the way back in Genesis 3, when God proclaimed that the son of a woman would come and though bruised by Satan, would crush Satan's head, that he would have victory over Satan's sin and death, that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. When Isaiah, as we saw last week, wrote about the suffering servant in Isaiah 52 and 53, Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He is the fulfillment of all God's promises in Scripture. That is what Saul didn't believe back here and does believe here. And now he is defending that with Scripture, showing that he is the fulfillment of these promises. We've used this verse before, but Luke chapter 24 it says, Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets of the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the poetry of the Psalms, right? In other words, the entire Old Testament, he says, is about me. And he began to teach his disciples about how he is the fulfillment. Another word for that is the Christ. So here's a note for you. Scripture alone is the authority for salvation. The final authority for all faith and practice is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. God has sovereignly superintended Scripture for us to trust in. Let me define some of those words. Inspired. The Holy Spirit, as we talked about in Acts 2, spoke through the prophets to write the Old Testament, right? Inspired, breathed out through the human author, God's words. Inerrant means it contains no error, Right? That it is, it is true. It is true about God. It is true about humanity. It is true about salvation. It is entirely true. And it is infallible. It won't go wrong ever. God has supernaturally, divinely, if you will, superintended or babysat the scriptures to get them here to us today. Kept his hand on, superintended, watched, so that we would have a trustworthy authority called scripture. That's why we have those amazing proofs like the words of Isaiah that were buried hundreds of years before Jesus was born and then unearthed after. So we can see that it was promised in advance, lived and became true, and then revealed over here. This is just a little way of God saying, listen, I will show you time and again that I'm true and I'm the only true. Verse 23 says, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. How the tables have turned, right? Now he's the one on the run for his faith in Jesus. Rather than the persecutor of Christianity, he's the Christian being persecuted. But that's what Jesus said to begin with. He'll suffer for my name, but that's okay. I have a plan. And he will become pivotal for the first century church. Verse 26, it says, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. It's funny and kind of quirky. Let me give you a detail that you wouldn't necessarily know. As you go from one sentence to the next, three years pass. 
Three years go by. We read about this in Galatians where he talks about his, his three years in between his conversion and going to Jerusalem for the first time. It's three years later they're still afraid of him. He made a dent, right? And he will then in turn become the most prominent first century Christian leader, second only to Jesus who is God. Right? He becomes pivotal in the first century landscape. He reshapes the known world by spreading the gospel and planting churches. Three years later, he's still known for who he used to be because he had been that much of a persecutor of Christianity. So the question is, do you see how completely transformed Saul is? See, our response to the amazing gift of grace is that same true repentance. Right? We in no less, we in no fewer ways or no less gravity, we, just like Saul, must completely change. That God's grace applied to us should cause us to turn everything upside down. In Romans chapter 2, it says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? God's riches, kindness, forbearance, patience. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Not mistaking grace for saying your sin is okay. Not mistaking for forgiveness, forgiveness for saying it's okay to sin. You see, God's kindness is intended to lead you, lead me, lead Saul, lead people to repentance. To turn from who they were, literally 180 degrees, and run to Jesus. The Greek word repent was that battlefield, you're losing the war, you're going to die, turn and run. The Greek word metanoia means to have a change of mind, like a complete change of what you believe. See, Saul did both. He had a complete change in his entire belief system because he was confronted with the truth of Jesus. And so he turned from this life and he ran to this life at all cost. He was saved in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone, with the authority of the salvation found in Scripture alone. We cannot trust in church history or church leaders. They often contradict themselves. You can't trust me. You can trust Scripture. You can trust me as long as I stay in Scripture. As soon as I leave this, run. I said that last week, and John left. He still hasn't come back. <laughs> so what applications will we make? What will we do this? What is something you heard today that you want to apply to your life? And so let me give you some prompts, some ideas. For me, I need to remember that salvation is for, the, for God's glory alone, and I need to live to that. I am looking at the way I manage my downtime, that I kind of throw away this other time. I work hard and then do nothing, and this life is short. I want that to be different. I want to live every day as if it could be the last and that the gospel matters more than whatever. For mature believers, those who have been walking with Jesus for some time, you are to teach the church the authority of Scripture alone, right? You are to teach them that God's Word is the authority, not politics, not what you think, not how you feel, but what God says in total, not just in one spot that fits your convenience. If you're new to Jesus, your response is faith alone resulting in obedience and repentance. 
As you come to faith, you'll be turning away from who you were a lot. And that'll never go away. You'll live a life of repentance, but there's a lot when we begin, for sure. For those of you who are not yet a follower of Jesus, hear that salvation is by grace alone, a gift to you, but paid in full by Christ. Then he gave his entire life so that you could be included in the family of God. And, and parents with kids, do you teach your kids that Jesus alone, Christ alone, is our salvation? That there is nothing else in this world, not where you go to college, not the job you get, not the spouse you get. Nothing else can take the place or be as important as Jesus alone. So what's your takeaway today? What's something you heard you want to apply to your life? Would you guys turn? We'll give you three or four minutes. Share that with somebody around you. Parents, it's a great time to help apply this to your children. Make sure that somebody around you is not sitting alone, please. <clears throat>